This week's guest is Gareth Berg. Gareth is currently the restaurant coordinator at the publicly owned Sleeman Center in Guelph, Ontario. This is a 5,000-seat arena that is home to the Guelph Storm of the Ontario Hockey League that also hosts many concerts and conventions. Gareth oversees the 240-seat restaurant, five bars, three kitchens, and 32 private suites. We talk with Gareth about the challenges in overseeing such a large publicly owned facility and hiring and maintaining staff in the millennial age. Enjoy the show. We are back with another episode of the Industry Podcast. I'm Kip Saunders. This is Dan Zaretto. What's happening, Dan? Uh, not much. Just uh, another day in paradise for myself. Yeah? You? <laughs> Just lots of working from home and... Been working from home, laying around, hanging out. Uh-huh. Yeah, you? How's business at the bar? Shit, shit, still shit. Till they, <laughs> till they let us... Uh, um, stay. Till they push the hours back again, we're going to be in a rough, a rough spell. But what are you going to yeah. do? You just gotta. There's not. There's uh, what I've discovered is there's literally nothing I can do. So, yeah. just luck. ride it out for as long as we can. Keep kicking that can down the road. Yes. Uh, we have another great guest for you, as always, uh, and uh, you should be checking the archives. Um, recently, we have had Parker Luffman. We had Ulysses Sanchez. Mm-hmm. We had Leah Pupkin. All great guests. Uh, today, we have with us Gareth Berg. Uh, it's going to be a good one. And then uh, next, uh, coming up, we have, uh, actually, I don't remember how we have booked in the following week, but the following week after that, we have an interesting one where we're going to be doing a roundtable discussion on um, moving to a no-tip culture in the service industry. So that's one you're not going to want to miss. Uh, if you like the show, and obviously you do, you should be, uh, the best way you could support us is to simply just subscribe, rate, and review wherever you're listening to your podcast. If you want to be on the show... Just DM us at uh, the Industry Podcast and tell us uh, about tell us your story, and then we'll book you, and you can tell it to everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, as always, big shout out to Zach Hanna at Zach Hanna Design Z A K H A N A H for all the amazing artwork he does for the show. We love you, Zach. And uh, I guess that's it. Let's just get right to it. We're going to be bringing in Gareth Berg. How you doing, Gareth? Good guys. How you doing? Oh, we are all right. Um, start uh, the way we have to start every show these days is to see how you're doing COVID related. How are things? Uh, you're currently working at the Sleeman Center, correct? Yeah, well, I work for the city of Guelph, um, yeah. and I manage I'm food and beverage manager at the Sleeman Center. Um, so it's kind of it's COVID hasn't hit me financially too too bad. Um, OHL, so the Sleeman Center is where the Guelph Storm play. So when uh, I mean, November or sorry, March 11th, NBA said we're shutting it down. Following day, the NHL said we're shutting it down. Thursday afternoon, I teach at Conestoga College too, so I I'd, uh, I'd finished up doing some prep for the weekend, and uh, we got the call that OHL was shutting down the next weekend. So it's uh, yeah, I had like a fifteen thousand dollar food order. I had to go back and take care of with my staff the next day, oh, which was man. just rough but about three weeks after that luckily you know i work for the city um they redeployed me to one of the senior centers in guelph and we started pumping out food for the at-risk community um just throughout guelph like seniors and and apartments that shouldn't be leaving that aren't in long-term care facilities so at one point we were pumping out like 900 meals a week um so it's i mean great great thing to be doing for the community but uh i've been one of the fortunate ones in, in our industry where uh I, I've been I've been gainfully employed the whole time. 
Oh, that's great. That's good that some of us are. Yeah. We, I mean, we, I technically am still employed, I guess, but uh, we, <laughs> that's a very technical way of looking at it. Um, okay, well, let's talk a little bit about your um, background here. Uh, you started at Benjamin's in, um, that's in St. Jacob's, correct? Yeah, it was in St. Jacobs. It, it was part of the Stonecrop Company. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I, I, the building's still there. I haven't been out that way in a long time. Not sure if I know they're no longer Benjamins. They did switch names, turn into something else. But yeah, started my apprentice, my culinary apprenticeship off there. Yeah, we I ate there a couple times. It was really good. Um, the so so that's kind of where you're getting your start. And uh, what at that time are you thinking? Oh, this is something I I want to do or. or was it some time into this uh, apprenticeship at Benjamin's that you realized, oh, maybe cooking's kind of going to be my gig? Um, well, so I started at Benjamin's when I was 18, graduated high school sort of thing. Um, maybe 19, I forgot when exactly. But I had a I had a bad accident uh, that summer. And up until that point, I wanted to uh, become a cop. Oh. Um, but I uh, I got I got <laughs> bad accident. I got hit by a transport truck on my bike. And um, yeah. Yeah, it was bad. I had uh, three compound fractures in my elbow, went through about two years reconstructive surgery and um, uh, physio, just building it back up sort of thing. So obviously with that sort of injury, any sort of idea of going into a physical job like being a cop um, certainly was sort of out of the realm for quite a while. So this this apprenticeship came up. Um, I had been a dishwasher before that at like and a line cook at Eastside Mario's and stuff. And I'd always enjoyed cooking with my mom and my dad. And, you know, food was a big part of our family. So I, I, you know, I needed a job out of high school and didn't really know if I wanted to do the college route yet. So started working as a full-time cook at Benjamin's and they eventually offered me an apprenticeship. And yeah, that's sort of where the, the whole thing started. Yeah. And, and so um, I guess you're not quite there at that point. You're still trying to figure out what you want to do, but this is a good gig while you've got it. Um, I, 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 how long did you work there? I was there for about two years, maybe just shy of two years. And then you went to work at La Costa, correct? Yeah, and then I was yeah. at La Costa. Yeah, we've um, had a couple people who on here who worked there. So. Uh, downtown Kitchener, right? Yeah. yeah, right across from the bus terminal. Yeah. Yeah, so... Um, Talk to us a little bit about that place. I know a lot of people who have worked, through, who have gone through that place, and at like it's more of the front of house people, but they all end up being very well trained. So there must have been some kind of really good training program there. There, yeah. I mean, Lacoste is no longer around, but they they had about I don't know, seven to nine restaurants. I can't remember exactly how many, uh, but they were spaced out. Um, there was two in Alberta. Um, they were the first ones to close down, and then. There was one in Toronto, Oakville, Mississauga, Burlington, like all through our area, right? Kitchener was about. Oh, I think there may, yeah, there was one one in London too. Oh, um, I, didn't, I don't think I ever knew it was a chain. Yeah, yeah. it wasn't a it, it wasn't a chain. I shouldn't have sorry. It was a chain. It wasn't a franchise. It was uh-huh. it was owned by the uh, uh, same two brothers, the the Darosh brothers. Um, so it was a Mediterranean casual fine dining restaurant. Uh, most of the food from scratch. And I mean, when I kind of moved to there i thought i was i thought i was doing fine dining until uh i actually started doing fine dining and realized that most places don't make uh, stock from powder um <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, I, but, do you think uh, well, just what since you mentioned that do you think that part of the reason that shit like that happens is it hard to have true fine dining if you're trying to operate that many restaurants like i i as an owner i would feel like the more i own the more i'm looking to c- cut costs here and there at each one 
Yeah, I think, I mean, part of it is consistency, right? Like, yeah. I always use the, like, everybody, everybody's got their favorite fast food restaurant. I mean, like, the McDonald's and Taco Bell's, right? But you know that when you go to McDonald's in Waterloo, Elmira, Kingston, Ottawa, you're, when you get a Big Mac, you get the Big Mac. Mm-hmm. I think that's the toughest thing, like, when you're expanding restaurants, right. is getting that consistency across the board. So these these convenient products, like the, uh, you know, the powdered stocks, hollandaise, demi-glaze, you know, all your sauces, stuff like that. You certainly eliminate that sort of discrepancy when you're trying to keep consistency. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, as far as the, like, as far as expanding the restaurants and stuff like that, yeah, these convenience products are, I mean, especially now, um, I mean, we all remember three years ago when um, our, our wages increased from you know the owner manager perspective it was sort of like wow i've got 3 months to figure this out 6 months whatever whatever it was that we had to uh figure out how to give our staff that pay raise and, and stay afloat mm-hmm. um so these convenience products when you're i think when you're looking to open a restaurant and you're and you're looking to expand it certainly do help in you know that labor perspective and uh and definitely keeping consistency Right. But at the time, you're not realizing, oh, this isn't really quite fine dining. You just like it's certainly more fine dining than you've been doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and yeah. so it's shortly after this that you actually decide to go to um, culinary school uh, in Niagara. Yeah. And yeah, Niagara uh, culinary school is in Niagara on the Lake um, or sorry, Niagara Falls at the time. They've now moved to Niagara on the Lake. Uh, did uh, Niagara College. Um and that was the apprenticeship program. So, I mean, the great thing about the apprenticeship program, not again, sort of wanting to like to really obviously pursue a career in culinary, um, the apprenticeship program pays for your college. Oh, okay. uh, so there's a nice, you know, nice bit of money you don't have to spend. You're just sort of covering your living expenses. Mm-hmm. But got some great training there, really learned about like the basics and the classics of food, like really getting into that French cuisine, um, you know, the mother sauces, uh how to you know proper cuts and stuff like that like a lot of it i knew when i went there but like getting into the baking that i hadn't had much experience as much experience with and you know making the proper sauces and doing things properly uh you know it certainly lays down the foundation for you of you know how to expand on on food yeah. it's the same as being a bartender and and you know knowing what te- tequila tastes like versus rum and how to incorporate those into a drink right right uh, okay, that's interesting. So, but obviously, at this point now, you've decided to go to school for it. You're probably thinking, okay, this is kind of what I want to do. Uh, do you remember when that when the light switch sort of went off for you, and you were saying, thinking, this is kind of the career I want to pursue? Um, I think it was just, <laughs> yeah. You know, it was it was actually back at Benjamin's when I first started kind of getting into food because, like. Didn't know a ton about it. Like I said, been a dish, been a dishwasher before, line cook at these sides, but you know it's it's cutting stuff out of a bag and throwing it into a steamer and you know a portion of this, portion of that. Um, I think it was when I really realized that I, I enjoyed cooking and wanted to pursue a career in it was when I I was working at Benjamin's. They asked me to come up with a feature of some sort. My parents had just done something. I forget what it was now. Um, it was, oh, it was a it was a rainbow trout with a uh, uh, hazelnut crust on it. Um, and I thought, oh, okay, this will be good. And we had rainbow trout in there. Um, I remember calling my parents, asking them for that. And a few weeks later, or, you know, maybe a year later, my mom sort of reversing it on me and coming to me with culinary questions and realizing, you know, I had a, I had a natural skill for cooking and really enjoyed it. But it was, it was that phone call back to mom and a couple of phone calls to dad saying, how did you make this? What did you do with that? And 
just the the creativity that you can have with food like just something as simple as a tomato and the, like the different preparations you can do with something as simple as a tomato whether it be a sauce or you know a salad anything that you're doing and then all the different varieties and stuff like that it was just the uh, like like the boundless creativity that i really enjoyed yeah that's uh that, yeah i can i get i get it totally it's very similar with them um, when you get into like the craft cocktailing side of the front of the house as well like once you get down that road and your creativity starts coming out that's uh you can get something to get excited about uh talk to me a little bit about maybe the difference between the excitement you gain from the whole creativity aspect of it to now you're on the line sweating the shifts every 12 hour days and yeah like like how do you keep your excitement and creativity uh for the job when you're working those kind of shitty hours Drinking at the end of the shift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, not that I was a job hopper. It's just I was young, wanted to get the experience. Um, as transient as this industry was, you know, my um, chefs were leaving at jobs I went to. New chef would come in. Wasn't a huge fan. So, I mean, I had a bit of variety in the jobs that I had while I was cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I went from La Costa, went to school, went back to La Costa, like sort of in between on weekends and stuff like that. And then really got my hands wet in um, the fine dining aspect uh, at Hillebrand in Niagara on the Lake, which was, you know, fine dining, fine dining. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of, yeah, just, just the creativity at that point, like really like going into that fine dining atmosphere, um, you know, the white tablecloth, everything from scratch. There was, you know, there was a baker there, you know, this was back in the early 2000s. So we had, you know, farmers and foragers coming to the back door, dropping stuff off. And literally everything was coming fresh out of the ground, like to the point where you'd expect a bunny to be on the end of the carrots when you're cleaning them up. <laughs> yeah. um, so, I mean, to go from, you know, Kitchener back in, you know, Kitchener Waterloo back in 2000, you know, 1999 to Niagara on the Lake, where you've just got this harvest coming out of everywhere, you know, stone fruit country, you know, you really got away from, livestock in you know kitchener waterloo and really started seeing a lot more you know heirloom vegetables uh different you know a lot of different stone fruits from the region really at that point i found out about local like being a local uh, i guess the term now would be locavore but like that farm to table before it was really you know it was a trendy word Yeah, yeah um that was that was a really cool experience for me and i mean as far as like maintaining that creativity Tony DeLuca, the chef at the time there, he was changing the menu every three weeks, uh, sometimes every two. Um, so to, you know, to sort of perfect nine items over two weeks time and then have the menu totally change on you in two weeks. Um, my creativity wasn't there, but the learning was really, really high. Right. So it was just, and I mean, and it keeps you, Lake, sorry, I mean, it probably keeps you excited about when you're changing the menu all the time. It's like you're constantly learning new stuff. You're learning new dishes. You're not just like churning out the same shit over and over again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's a certain point at that, like Niagara on the Lake is, is a busy, busy little town. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, you know, we were, we were turning it over pretty, pretty good then. And we still, I'd well, maybe not now, but, um, mm-hmm. you know, at some point, like I remember at the end of that summer, just, just thinking, I'm glad we're getting to the end of it because like changing the menu that frequently is, is as much as I was enjoying the learning. It's like, you never really have a chance to sort of, sit and enjoy your work for a little bit if you know right. what i mean like it's yeah. like i'm really happy with this menu i'm really happy with this dish and where it's evolved um 
and, and getting to enjoy that for a second, like the menu would change just that quick. But again, the learning opportunities and some of the, some of the recipes that I learned back then, I still use pieces of them, portions of them, you know, when I'm, when I'm designing menus now. How do you feel about that as a, like a sustainable business model, the constant menu changing? Like, obviously it's not something you can do as we were talking about earlier in like a chain style restaurant situation, but like in a smaller independent restaurant, is that um, like, and I don't know, maybe even more so now it's an interesting time to talk about it, but is this um, a business model that you can push forward with and be successful or is or what kind of challenges does it present? I think, I think on the positive side of it, um, you're, you're not worried about 86 in a menu item. Um, when you're changing menu that frequently, because like if people are used to you changing that menu, like frequently, it's just sort of, oh, like, let's go there. Let's see what's on the menu tonight. Um, mm. So I think you've got that aspect. But then if you don't have those staple items that are there all the time for the regulars, you get into that that sort of issue where, you know, you, you don't know if you're getting people coming back for the same thing all the time and just sort of making those regulars happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the other nice thing about it with the seasonality of Canada you know, veg and produce in the summertime in Canada, it's, you know, it's, it's an affordable price. You move into the wintertime. I think everybody remembers three years ago when cauliflower ended up being like 13, 14 bucks a head. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, how, how is that sustainable? Like from right. that perspective, like it's, it's tough. And I think it, it really depends on your concept. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, you, if you're a wing joint, how are you going to change your menu every, you know, if you're a wing joint, the sports bar, how are you going to change your menu? Um, you know, like with the seasons every couple of weeks, but right. I mean, you worked at Athos. When was yeah. like I, I haven't been out there in a while, but when I was at Lacoste, we were out there every weekend. Right. Um, and I don't think like when I haven't been out there in a while, like I said, but they haven't changed their menu in ages, and they're packed all the time. The food's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Like they're like that's one example of you don't need to change your menu. Like if it's good, people enjoy it. They're gonna keep coming back. For right. It. Yeah. And maybe that's the difference between you know, a bar, your local, that sort of thing. And somewhere that you go out for a special occasion or, you know, it, I think that price point comes with it too. Mm-hmm. Um, I, something else I'd like to touch on if you're a game uh, while you're talking, we were talking about this because it, uh, you were mentioning that you kind of bounced around to a lot of different places. Uh, it's been my experience. I mean, obviously the service industry is in its entirety, very transient. People move around to different jobs all the time, but I've, it's been my experience that even more so in the back of the house uh, than the front of the house. Like if, if generally if servers are making good money and they don't mind the clientele, they're happy to stick around. Whereas at the back of the house, it's been my experience that the grass is always greener somewhere else. Uh, so can you talk to me a little bit about uh, like why you think that is, or maybe you don't think that's maybe, maybe you don't agree with me, but um, if you do, why do you think it is that people in, in kitchens tend to want to bounce around so much? Um, I mean, you're really unpacking a lot there. I think um, <laughs> it's. I mean, it's it's true. Like they're like my, my the team that I have at at Sleeman Center. Like I look at my front of house, my back of house staff. I've I've got front of house staff that have been at the Sleeman Center as uh, like concession servers, handing out popcorn from the point at they, which they could work, and they eventually made it up to the restaurant. Been at the Sleeman Center for 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. I've got cooks there now that you know I've. I've worked with, I've tra- I've, I, you know, I've helped train them into cooks that, you know, I've been there for six years. I've got a couple cooks that have been there for six years with me. Um, I think from my experience moving, 
part of it was wanting to grow really quickly in the in, in the industry and my mindset at that point in time was I was a line cook now I was a junior sous chef now I was saute I can't go any higher like the people are set in the positions above me I need to move on to grow mm-hmm. which isn't necessarily true all the time um, that was my mindset at the time that was usually the reason I left the job mm-hmm. I think the other thing I mean you know we talk about the disparity between front of house and back of house. Um, you know, servers make more than cooks. Mm-hmm. If you want to raise and you can't get it, there's usually somebody willing to give you that 50 cents more an hour, which is, which is sad. But uh, I think right. that's, there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. Because like, especially for line cooks, moving from one spot to another in general, the job's the same. You're just working with yeah. this different menu, right? Like the hours are yeah. still shit going to be shitty the like it's still hard fucking work you're still make it around the same amount so yeah i mean there's totally that and i think i think the other aspect is just the t- like just the team that is online like if you're in a really hostile work environment and let's face it like we i don't want to call the hospitality industry a hostile work environment but it's a high pressure work yes. environment if you don't have a great team around you that's going to make you either want to quit the industry or move on to, like you said, greener pastures. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's a lot of it there. And I think a lot of that comes from the top down. What sort of environment are your managers creating for you? Um, you know, <laughs> the other thing that comes up in industry conversations all the time is, what are your extracurricular relationships looking like in that place? Yeah. Like, have you burned yeah. your bridges? Like, <laughs> there's, yeah. there's a lot of yeah. shit in where you eat in this industry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I know. And I've seen that. It's funny you mentioned that. I've seen that so many times with um, uh, front of house and back of house, but uh, where people are just leaving because, well, they made the mistake of, uh, of shooting where they ate and... <laughs> <laughs> that is just not comfortable for anyone anymore. Somebody's got to go. Um, uh, talking about because I know you've done a little, uh, you did a little stint in the front of the house as well, um, and, and I know you you're mentioning the pay disparity. Like, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, what, like, what's fair? I mean, because I, I hear this a lot: the disparity between what you make in the front of the house and what you make in the back of the house. And I mean, you hear things like, "Well, that's just like I I, I understand." Um, some people in the back of the house finding it unfair. I've also heard front of house people say, well, you, why don't you get a job as a server then? You know what I mean? So like, for sure. Um, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned this in a few weeks time, you're having a round table on, um, what, what, uh, getting out of the tipping culture. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the conversation goes to like, I see, um, yeah, this is a tough one. I mean, I think part of it is you've got two sets of professionals working on two separate sides of a, of a restaurant. No matter, you know, I really try to break down that barrier with my front and my back of house staff. Um, but that disparity is usually the one thing that sort of keeps that that wall up. Mm-hmm. As far as what do you do about it, what's fair, I mean... It depends. It depends on. I, I think part of it is getting rid of tipping. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes things better. It, it makes things better for servers. As far as like, I don't want to be so childish to say like having an adult lifestyle, like being able to go to the bank and get a loan and <laughs> taxes. The whole like that whole side of the argument. I think right. if you go to a non-tipping culture and you distribute everything evenly, I mean, I, I think. I mean, the unfortunate part is, I think servers are going to take. Uh, like a bit of a 
they're going to take a financial loss from something like that. If you start distributing more money to the back of house, Mm -hmm. my sort of philosophy on it has always been like, if we're working as a team, um, we should be able to distribute that money fairly to the team. Um, Yeah. It's again, we're really unpackaging a big, big thing here. I mean, I don't think there's a simple solution to it. And having worked as a bartender server, um, you know, cook, chef and Sue, I see it from both sides. And I mean, I think, the, I think part of the problem is that we don't look at the, at the industry overall as a professional industry. There's not too many industries where you look at this and say, yeah, just, just the whole tipping thing. Like you don't, you don't go to the bank and get some financial advice and, and, and offer them some money because they gave you good financial advice. Right, yeah. You don't go to a car dealership and enjoy the experience, walk out with a car and give them extra money because you enjoyed the experience. Right. You do that here. And I mean, from the back of house perspective, I think the argument is if the kitchen has a shit night, who suffers emotionally yeah. and stressfully, everybody does, but it's the servers in the front that take the, that yep. take the, the brunt of the financial exercise there. Not just the financial part, but just the um, person-to-person that you can get from an unhappy guest. Like, the, Absolutely. Like you're, the, you're the one on the line of fire, right? So, Yeah. And we've, no, we've for all, sure. Yeah. It's, and I mean, it's, it's tough. I mean, you know, you've got two very different personalities working on, in the back of house and front of house. And I don't, I mean, to me, the easiest, <laughs> I mean, you've, if you're going to make it completely fair, you've pretty much got to nuke our industry as it stands right now and, and redesign it so that, you know, it's fair. Like, do people make, I think the question comes down to, is there any reason that servers should make more than cooks or cooks should make more than servers? Mm-hmm. Um, or is it, you know, if you look at a sports team, there's, there's a, there's a wage disparity on every sports team. Your superstars are making way more money than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your, your th- third row guys are not making as much there, but they're all playing as a team. But when you're basing a team's performance on a certain amount of, like on your best players getting the best salaries, if you can, is, is can you translate that into the restaurant industry? Can your mm-hmm. top cooks and your top servers who are, who are selling and, you know, pumping out the, like the high ticket items, should they be making more or, or should they be making more than, you know, the the first cook or like the demi server. Yeah, I'll pick up on that a little bit because I think what you're getting at is kind of interesting. I wonder if like you can pull off a tiered salary structure in our industry where it's like, but then it, it uh, the problem is with sports, it's very it's usually very easy to determine who the better players are. Whereas sure. it's it's definitely a lot more can be a lot more subjective when you're talking about a restaurant. No, for sure. If you, I mean. Yeah, like if you've got one server who's great at selling wine and can sell the, the big ticket items, but they're but guests hate them. Right. Like there's <laughs> yeah. there's that first thing right there. Well, you, then you've got the exact opposite. You've got the the server that everybody likes, but doesn't know the menu and can't sell it to save their life. And then you've got the cook in the back who pumps it out really quick, but it's not as good as the other guy, right? So mm. it's no, you're right. Like it's there's no real simple solution to it. No. Um, and I mean, I feel, I feel like we were all we like. People are the good news. I think is people are starting to think about it, which is good. But I, but I think that a lot of people, a lot of smart fucking people, are thinking about it all the time now, and no one's really come up with a solution, at least that I know of. That 
like that's really hit like that's really worked out for everyone no i and it's funny because there's been you know i think we've all been following the restaurants um whether they're in the states and canada you know i think richmond station was one of the ones in toronto that got rid of tipping mm-hmm. and sort of re and you know built in they don't want to call it a gratuity and i don't think that's what it should be called but they you know they increased their the price of their their products so they could pay their staff a better wage, but they did that across the board. Right. Um, and you, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of restaurants that have done that that have failed because the community that we're serving or guests that are coming into the restaurant don't not all of them, but a lot of people don't like having or don't like losing the power to give somebody that tip. Right. Or more, probably more, or more importantly, losing the power to not give it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, let me ask you this. Do you, um, because you had touched on it uh, briefly, it's going to be another one of these questions where you're going to be like, Jesus Christ, Saunders, we can't solve all the world's problems <laughs> in one fucking podcast. But um, do you think that there is a, dis, um, a certain personality type that gravitates gravitates towards the back of house and one that gravitates towards the front of house like you there's obvious exceptions someone like you you've done both but is there is there a discrepancy in the personality of someone who goes to the back of the house or someone who goes to the front of the house and if so what do you think it is um yeah i think there honestly i think it depends on where you're working in the industry because i mean if you're talking about well, I mean, okay, take my place, like take Sleeman Center, for example. I've got, like, we had a really, really hard time finding cooks to work at the Sleeman Center. Um, we, we've we've implemented a few things to, to change that, like increasing our pay wages. Um, and, and, you know, just basically that's the, the big one for cooks. Um, but at a certain point, I had to come to the, like, the conclusion that I'm, I'm not a fine dining restaurant. Like, we're a sports bar in an arena that has 5,000 seats in it. Right. Um, you know, we've got a 260-seat um, restaurant, um, 32 private suites. You know, we're, we're mostly pumping out wings and, uh, you know, wings tender stuff. Like that. We do some fun stuff, but that's, that's the bread and butter there. I don't need somebody that's gone to school to drop fries in a basket. Right. So... We, we, we started hiring, like I started hiring very specifically younger kids and training them the way we wanted them to be trained. Uh-huh. Talk about the challenges, as you're saying, you're hiring some younger people there um, and training them up. And I understand exactly why people want to do that, because pe- people, younger people who have, don't have a whole lot of experience, they, don't also, they also don't have the baggage that comes with having a whole lot of experience and, yeah. and thinking that you know how to do everything perfectly right um and really like everyone needs the base skills but when you move to a new spot that's where you work now and you need to do things the way they like them done no matter what you think is the right idea so that that's the obvious plus of doing the hiring of a young person and training them up a little bit we can maybe talk about the the negative side of it which is like how do you feel about the general attitudes of of younger people in the industry right now I, I, I compared to like work ethic wise or whatever are you finding any issues with that or oh for sure i mean i don't i don't want, I want to call out on the millennials like specifically because everybody does I just <laughs> oh i do it i do it pretty much every week here <laughs> <laughs> but yeah like i mean i everybody's got their the, like that one story of you know the kid who didn't show up blah 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 what i've been finding lately 
is like you're getting 20 year olds that haven't worked before that come in and i mean this is a, this is a true story like you know like 20 something comes in gets the job hire them shows up the first shift on time second shift late third shift doesn't show up fourth shift late you know fifth shift i'm like forget it this guy's not going to work out get rid of him yeah. You know, well, well within, well within my reason, well within my means to do that. You know, yeah. tr- tried to train them up. They're just, you just know that they're not going to work. Right. What I've been finding, you get a call from the parents now, saying, oh "Why did why, <laughs> why, like, why did you get rid of my? Why did you get rid of my son? Why, why did you get rid of my daughter?" And you know, explain it to them, and they're just like, "Oh, well, they didn't know that." It's like, "Well, I, I'm sorry, I'm not here to parent your child." Like, I'm that's right. Yeah, yeah. I think you just you just gotta say to the parents at that point, like, "Well, is it cool if you do that at your job? Like, <laughs> why aren't you teaching your kids this?" Even I, I get being like, I get like, I'm not a parent yet, but I, I mean, I get being a bit overprotective. But take like, your time, Gareth. Take your time. There's no <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I and I get. I, I get the idea of being an overprotective parent, but when I bring in some people, like their parents drop them off, that's totally cool. I remember going for my first job interview when I was 15, whatever it was, and my parents dropped me off. They didn't come in. They didn't wander. They didn't linger around the interview. Mm. But this is becoming like a norm. Yeah. Um, but like as far as, you know, the 15-year-old, I'm finding like the 15, 16, 17-year-olds Actually, the ones I've been hiring have a pretty good work ethic. Like, oh, that's good. It, it, it takes it, – but, I mean, again, I'm not – you know, we do some fun items at the Steeman Center. Like, we, we've, we've got a sous vide brisket on the menu that's really popular. We do our own curries. We do a lot of stuff from scratch, but it's pub-style stuff. Sure. It's not – like, we're not doing, like, super heavy plating or anything like that. So it's it's not – there's not a ton of training that needs to happen, but we've mm. got a good – little hierarchy that you know a lot of my pretty much all of my cooks at this point in time started in my dish pit and they made it onto the line like everybody else does somebody called in sick somebody didn't show up for their shift and my best dishwasher went on the salads for the night and we've sort of made that hierarchy and this was one of the things that we implemented is that we've got a bit of a pay scale so even though it's not much with the 15 year olds well a 50 a 50 cent raise with the promotion it's still a raise with a promotion. So, I mean, we've developed a culture in, in my kitchen um, that, you know, if you put in the work, if you if you learn your menu and what you're supposed to be doing and you do it properly, when the opportunity comes for, like, and somebody's sick or, you know, somebody moves on, the kids are actually wanting to step up. Oh, good. So, I mean, I, I, I think I'm, I'm pretty fortunate in the staff I have. No, like good. I, I really, I really do feel that. But I mean, I know, like I got buddies in, in I've got buddies in, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, long-term care facilities that are having problems like no others in the kitchen. Like they just, they can't get people to show up to their shifts. Like, you know, we've all had, we, I mean, we all say it. If, if you need to hire five people, you need to you need to interview twenty and schedule twenty interviews because you know you're only gonna have eight people show up to it. I wait, wait, oh my! That one was stunning <laughs> to me when I first opened Rabbit. I, I was stunned by it. I was doing all this hiring. I was stunned by how many people literally would not show up to an interview. Like that's like literally firebombing the bridge. Yeah. <laughs> like what happens if what happens if the place that you ended up getting the job at doesn't work out? Now you can't go back to this other place because you're like once you don't once you schedule time with me, I'm already fucking busy, and yeah. and and you don't show up for it. That's it. You're done with me. Like yeah. uh, I have. Well, before we get off the topic, I had a funny thing happen just the other like recently when we reopened post COVID with and talking about dealing with millennial ages. Um, 
And this is not a blanket statement. There are plenty of people in their 20s who are fucking amazing. Uh, and so, that's the tough thing I find is that, like, you know, it's it's the one bad apple sort of thing. Story Millennia yeah. is kind of... <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> so we obviously had reduced hours once we reopened, and so that means less shifts to go around, right? And, you know, my business partner and I are trying to work so more, so we, we're paying less salary. Like, there's ways you got to make cuts, right? And uh, we <laughs> had to, one of our staff members who was like, freaking out I'm not getting enough shifts this is unfair like I need an advance on my pay I gave him an advance on his pay uh, but this is totally unfair I'm not getting enough shifts blah blah so the very next week I gave him as many shifts as we had for the week like he was working every day we were open and he gave them all away (laughs) and, and there's no way to explain this logically to them like they don't see what you're seeing like you know what i mean this is you know this i don't know i don't know what it is but there's this because i mean at some point in time we were all young in the industry and it was like your main focus is you your section and more importantly you yeah and like it's just i'm not getting my shifts i'm not getting this i think there's a fundamental shift like i'm I'm not an owner i don't honestly i don't have the balls to own a restaurant like i I really don't um so like i really take my hat off to you but no well thanks but there, my, my balls are shriveled up right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. But no, 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 all good. Um, there's this fundamental shift that I think that happens to people that make a career out of this industry. At some point in time, you decide, I don't want to be a line cook. I don't want to be just a grunt, whether it's a server, a hostess, mm-hmm. you know, a line cook, a dishwasher, whatever, you make a fundamental decision that you're either going to be an owner, you're going to be a lifelong server, a lifelong cook, or you're going to step into management. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that when, you know, I've heard you talk about it on, you know, uh, on your podcast, when you opened rabbit, that you're just like, I got into this. I'm just like, I didn't know I had to do this. Or like, there's just that yeah. one thing that you're like, I didn't realize my managers were doing this. Like, yeah. and it's, there's something that switches where you're just suddenly like, you try to start balancing it all, like try to keep your servers happy. Like, you know, you're, tr- you're trying to manage the books, trying to, you know, keep your schedules intact so that you're still making money. Like there's just this fundamental shift that happens. And then you look back on these people that are complaining that, you know, I really need this. I need that. You give it to them. And then they just sort of throw it back in your face. and like, what the fuck was your issue? Like, why did I go to this trouble? <laughs> yeah, I know. And it's sometimes hard not to take it personally. And you can't because you got to like, it's like you were saying earlier, you got to remember I was fucking 20 one time and all I cared about was myself too. But like, but it, but when you get old, when you move along, it's sometimes hard. It's like I gave you all this shit, and and I, yeah. I gave you everything you wanted, and this is how you come back. And it's, it, it, you really gotta check yourself to not take it personally. Uh, one other question I wanted to ask you, well, m- several more questions, but the next question I wanted to ask you was uh, uh, because you're one of the people who has transitioned to both sides of the house. Um, I think it's pretty obvious that moving from the kitchen to the front of the house there's very many things that you learned in the back of the house that helped you do your job in the front of the house. Do you, sure. but, do, but do you find, did you find anything that once you went back to cooking, being in the back of the house again, that you learned while you're in your stint at the front of the house that helped you once you got back to the back of the house? You know what? On it, Yeah. Um, you know, there, I think there's been a fundamental shift in the back of the house in the last 10, 15 years where you've moved away from these Gordon Ramsay personalities, screaming, kicking, throwing, blah, blah, blah. And um, my first sort of management job uh, was in Niagara on the Lake, this little place called Disease. And my manager there, Amy, she really taught me about talking to people. And 
you know, it's being more, more importantly, I think being a man talking to a woman and just, you know, you talk to a guy and you've got your arms crossed that doesn't mean anything to a guy. It's just, you're standing there comfortably with your arms crossed. But mm-hmm. when you're talking to a woman, it's, it's, it's almost an aggressive way of speaking to somebody. So I found my communication when I moved from like just these little uh. nuanced things, I found these little things that when I moved back to the kitchen, um, you know, I, st- I still have my moments. Like, like everybody has that stressed out moment. I really try to keep myself in check, but I still have them. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, moving to the, you know, moving to the kitchen and just sort of, being aware of body language and how I'm actually presenting myself to my staff, mm. especially if you're doing like, especially if, if you're praising somebody, praise isn't hard. Like it's, it's hard to remember to praise somebody, but when you're praising somebody, that's not a difficult thing to do. You can do it quickly. You can yeah. do it when you're walking past them, when you're disciplining somebody or you're correcting an action or, you know, on, on whatever scale that happens to be, you know, it, it comes, it, it goes a lot further. I find if you know there's there's obviously intent behind it but there's body language behind it that's appropriate to what you're doing Mm -hmm. and i never really thought about it right like rough shift long day you're leaning against the walk-in you're leaning against the beer cooler and you got your arms crossed like whatever i got my arms crossed it's just comfortable yeah (laughs) yeah exactly but i mean that's perceived very differently to, to to you know different people i don't mean to bring up women specifically like you know guys can look at that and think that it's aggressive sure but you know just sort of that stuff i mean i'm i'm nearly six foot tall i'm 210 pounds i'm not a small guy but i'm not mm. huge by any means but you know you know what it's like in the middle of a rush you know you're 10 15 minute wait list all of your tables are dirty. Somebody cut themselves in the back. One server didn't show up. Now with everything else going on, you know, it's not difficult to sort of raise your voice without intentionally doing it, especially if you're in, in, in the kitchen or in a loud environment. You're, you're talking yeah. more loudly. You're not yelling. No. And I think that's the other thing that I'm like, you know, I've, I've got to remind myself when I'm talking to one of my young staff. It's like I've really got to sort of just take that 10 seconds calm down not because i'm angry just because i'm you know i'm amped up the adrenaline's in my system i'm running around like the rink doing whatever you've got to sort of bring yourself down but that was one of the big ones that i learned sort of in the front of house because you've got eyes on you all the time whether it's your front of house staff customers you know whatever it happens to be and sort of bringing that attitude and mentality to the, to the kitchen i just found i became a much better um communicator oh good yeah and it's it's very it's a very fine line i find from like coming across as aggressive and yelling at someone and also just understanding that the point needs to get across firmly. Like when you're in a stressful situation and something's not going the way it needs to go and that needs to be corrected immediately, it's very difficult to, to get the sense of urgency across without sounding like you're yelling at them. Yeah. That's no, and that's it. Like, there's that sense of urgency, and there's also that adrenaline rush behind you. Mm. Yeah, and you combine those two, like it's it's tough. Like, it's tough to you know maintain that that level of respect and maintain your integrity. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, you know, working on the in the front of house, you can, you know, especially in a hockey arena. You know, we were in playoffs a couple of years ago, and you know, you're talking to somebody. Somebody needs your attention. Next thing you know, the lights are going off because the you know the home team scored and da, 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 like it's it's chaotic. It's crazy. Yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Like, uh, can we talk a little bit more about that? Because you're definitely the first person we've had on the show who has worked in a sports arena. Like, they must just be a much more like. How do you keep things calm in such a chaotic environment? 
So I, I've been there for, this is my seventh hockey season. So my sixth year at the Sleeman Center. Um, and just, I can just give you a, have you guys been to the Sleeman Center at all or the Rangers game? Rangers uh, probably, right? Yes. Rangers, 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 Rangers game, yeah. yeah. So we're, we're small. Rangers Arena is 10,000, 10, 12,000 seats. We're 5,000. So that new addition the Rangers put on, take that off. That's the size of our, our, our hockey oh, okay. arena. Okay. So it's, it's big. And just to like, to kind of put into perspective, my, like my, my food and beverage little area, I've got 260 seat restaurant that, uh, there's an additional 120 seats that go down to the ice. We have like club service there. Um, I've got four bars plus the bar in the restaurant. Uh, I've got two main kitchens in one, one area that services the restaurant and my 32 suites upstairs. And then I've got a pizza kitchen and another kitchen that does like hot dogs and fries. So like I've wow. got like 20,000 square feet of area that I got to cover um, while managing the restaurant as well. So uh, it's, it's chaotic. Like I've got 55 great staff that do a, a really good job. And like I said, luckily a lot of them have been at that, that rank for, and with me for, you know, quite a few years. Um, but as far as, uh, as far as keeping it under control and doing that, a lot of it's planning. Like we have, um, basically like, well, before COVID hit, um, you know, Friday, Sundays were our game days, Friday. And I mean, we're doing $55,000 in food and beverage sales on a Friday night. Wow. Like it's, it's nuts. And we're, we're, we're sort of like a 50, 50, 55, 45 booze to food. So we, we pump out a lot of food. We pump out a lot of booze. Mm. Um, but you know, sort of be, knowing where you need to be when, like the restaurant opens an hour and a half before the before game time. So you know, the first part of my evening is in the restaurant. Even before that, like I'm usually in the kitchen for a couple hours, helping the guys out, just getting ready for service, and you know, doing all that. Our restaurant's quite busy. We've got a really big following there. Um, but I mean, Kip, you mentioned this in a few episodes back. I think when you were talking to. Um, the lady that owns Dine and Vine. Uh, oh, delegation. Swine and Vine? Swine and Vine, Swine yeah. And Vine. Yeah. yeah. Shout out to Jill Sadler, friend of the pod. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's... I think that's the tough, toughest thing I had to learn as a manager. You can't do it by yourself. You mentioned this at White Rabbit when you got that place going. Mm-hmm. I mean, as much as you want to do it yourself, you can't. Like, you've got to wow. have... Like, you've got to train your supervisors up to a point that you're happy with them and you've got to give them their creative freedom to make mistakes and work through the solution with them. Mm-hmm. Um, like my, my biggest thing, I learned this years ago, actually uh, in a completely separate industry, you know, when your staff, especially your core staff come up to you and say, I've got a problem at blah, 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 blah. And then walk away expecting you to fix it. You've got it. You've got to grab them and calmly say, don't come to me with a problem, come to me with a solution and yes. let's figure this out. Yeah. But that's that's so hard, especially when you're a new like you're a new manager, like mm. delegating things off and trusting people. Yeah. I trust people, but like you don't really realize how much you don't trust people until you've got 55 staff and 5,000 people in a freaking yeah. hockey arena. <laughs> but uh, so, that's yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's yeah. that's sort of my thing. It's it's taken me a good six years to get to that point. But I've got you know I've got a number of great supervisors in, in my front of house that are sort of like they're, they're server supervisors. So they're working, they like, they can help out with, with, with problems. We've got like a, like anything else. Like if somebody's meal comes out cold, well, my servers know that they just need to go back to the kitchen, talk to the chef. They'll get a hot meal back as quick as we can possibly get it. My servers also know that if somebody's just irate, pissed off, 
you don't need to put up with this. This is where Gareth comes in and he and he deals with it from there. Right. Like there's we've got a sort of thing set up. Uh, okay, so I have a couple questions, a couple more follow-up questions about the Selena set. I just find this interesting. Um so you obviously had, like you said, you have game days Friday and Sunday, probably not every Friday and Sunday. Sometimes you're on the road, I'm assuming. Um, but you also have I, concerts there, correct? Yep. Yeah. And Last events? year. Yeah. Concerts and events. Um, hockey is our big thing. Like the Gulf Storm is the big one. Um, and we do like a regular season is 30, 34, I think 37 games with the preseason. So pretty much, I mean, pretty much every Friday, and then you can pretty much guarantee every other Sunday if you average it out. Okay. Um, and then throw in some extra events. So we did. We had the Arkells in there last year. Um, the year before that, we had Mariana's Trench. Way back in the day before I got there, the hip played at, at uh, the Guelph Arena. Mm-hmm. Um, we do other events. Uh, we do uh, a cheerleading event, um, which is called Cheer Sport. It's like aggressive cheerleading. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, okay, so I guess what I'm getting at here is, how, like, for you personally, how, like, when do you actually know what your schedule is going to be? Like, so I, I, write, I write, I write my own schedule. I mean, basically, if if we're looking at a uh, like, if we're looking at a double event week, so we, let's just say like a, a week that we have hockey on Friday, hockey on Sunday. Um, like I work for the city of Guelph. I tech, like, like I work for a union. Technically I'm only supposed, like, I'm on salary for 35 hours a week. If mm-hmm. I start blowing my hours out, um, I, I will get, I'll, I'll get paid overtime or whatever. Um, but generally my week looks like, you know, Monday I go in and do my payroll. Uh, I have somebody come in and help me with my inventory Monday afternoons. I'm putting together reports from the weekend just to show how much beer we sold what our inventory stocks look like, seeing if there's any discrepancies that we need to be aware of, like, you know, just anything from pilferage to this mm-hmm. keg was crap, we got to return it, mm-hmm. um, that sort of thing. Tuesdays, that must suck up a lot of your time. Like, oh, yeah. Because I, I, that shit sucks up a lot of my time, and I've got one small little spot that's 150 capacity, right? Like, you, you're like, dealing with, like, I mean, how do you even keep on top of all the ordering? I'm just curious. So, okay, so there's three there's three other people in my department plus my boss. So okay. I, one of the things I don't take care of is alcohol, which is a godsend. Oh. But luckily because we're the Sleeman center, obviously we're sponsored by Sleeman. Mm-hmm. We only carry two draft beers, Sleeman okay. original and Sleeman clear. So that one's easy. Right. Just make sure we have lots of it. And then as far as, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, and then as far as like uh, liquor and stuff like that goes, we've really scaled it down over the last couple of years just to sort of ease up on the, on the ordering, um, um, on the ordering and just sort of how much stuff we have in inventory. And then, then from there, the wastage as well. And something I am, you probably don't sell a lot of liquor at those events anyway, or maybe at a concert. Oh, you'd be surprised. Oh yeah. No, we sell, we sell a ton of liquor, especially in the restaurant and in our suites. Oh, sure. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, but one of the things I implemented a couple of years ago, I worked on uh, a friend of mine that works at uh, City Hall. So the nice thing about working for a big company like the city of Guelph is like you've got a lot of great brains at your resource. Um, so you've got people that are really good with computers, Google Cloud, stuff like that. I didn't know much about Google Cloud when I first started working there, but I was using an inventory system and we were sort of, you know, just on paper count your inventory at the end of the night or at the start of the night, you know, it's just what everybody does in a bar, weigh it out, mm-hmm. whatever you're doing. Yeah. So one of the things I implemented or I, I, and I had help doing this is we put our entire inventory system, uh, for like our, my five bars onto, uh, 
on, on the tablets using the Google Cloud. So at the start of the night, just like you normally would, all, all the bartenders would, input, would uh, input their their starting counts. Uh, at the end of the night, they'd put in their closing counts. And while they were doing their closing counts, I'd run downstairs, print off the report, and I'd fill in what they sold so that I could immediately, when they came down to cash out, I could see their discrepancies. Mm-hmm. So we went from, I mean, and like I said, I've had a great staff there. Theft and pilferage really has never been an issue, but this just sort of ensured it, it never would be. Because sure. I can tell immediately, like, okay, you know, you're out 12 cases of beer. Oh, well, 12 cases, we, we move in um, packs of six, you know, so six, 12, 24. If you're out by something like that, the likelihood is you forgot something from when you had a drop during the night from a case of beer coming in. Right. Um, but if you're out like one or two, or, you know, if you're suddenly out 500 ounces of draft beer, it's like, well, what happened? Yeah. Um, you know, and you, you go upstairs and you look and there's a, there's a slice in the, uh, the draft tower and you've got, you know, 500 ounces of beer sitting in a, in a draft. Right. Oh. Or so, 500 ounces of beer sitting in, uh, the bartender's friend's gut. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm so, I, I'm sort of interested as well as like, what is it like? Because obviously you've you've run the gamut of places you've worked at. Like definitely, I was like just reading through your bio. It's pretty crazy. You've worked in all sorts of places, and I think that's awesome. Like, so it's your boss is the city of Guelph. What's it like yeah. working for sort of a city in the hospitality industry as opposed to like having someone you can like? I'm sure I know you you have your direct supervisor, yeah. but like as opposed to like being like that guy owns the place. That's who I have to answer to. You know what I mean? It's, uh, honestly, I mean, I can say this without question. It's fucking disastrous at times. It's, uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's really tough. Um, there's some great aspects to it and there's some really tough ones. You've got unions to contend with. You've got, um, like my part-time staff. I can only work X amount of hours per week. Um, let's, let's just say it's 21 hours per week, but if I have three events, Every event usually takes up eight eight hours. So if I have three events, I'm hitting 24 hours. Suddenly, you're kind of getting into the situation where you know you're kind of, you're kind of getting a bit of pressure to like to ease back on the labor. But like it's weird, right? Because when you work for a city, it's we're open from eight until five, and we need five people in there all the time working. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you work for a restaurant, everything grows exponentially. If you're open, you know, if, if we're open for three events, that means I need three events, like I need staff times three. They don't always get that. They just sort of look at the week and say, well, you you can only work this body for 21 to 24 hours. Right. If you're going over that, that's not a good thing. Right. The, the other thing that it's, which is actually really, really awesome. Um, because we're the city of Guelph, all of the staff are very, very aware that, we have to be very, very aware and alert about um, like over-serving. Mm-hmm. So we have a lot of extra security measures in place, like a lot of extra, like we've got off-duty cops. We've got or right. sorry, our overtime cops. We've got, I mean, think about Oktoberfest and the amount of extra security you see in a beer tent. Mm-hmm. Obviously not this year. Yes. Um, but, but, but think about that and basically put it into the arena. There's a lot of extra support that you get, like even mentioning like this uh, this inventory system that I put in on the Google Cloud, stuff like that. You know, we've got security walking around the place. We still hold, like I still hold my servers and my bartenders accountable for over service. And, and that's a tough thing because of the size of the place. Yeah. You know, if you cut somebody off here, there's nothing stopping them from going to the next bar. Yeah. So we've got to have... It. How do you handle that? Like, that's the... Uh... 
the whole I, idea of uh, not of over service is pretty much predicated on the fact that I'm taking care of my guests, right? Like, so, but if that guest can just walk to another side of the arena and go to somebody else, then it's um. So we've all got walkie talkies on us. So I mean, the second something like that happens, oh, go with the detour. <laughs> they're both side of the city <laughs> okay <laughs> I, thought, I thought it was just like a detour um yeah like this is basically as soon as we've recognized that somebody's been overserved, whether that be our fault they came in intoxicated they, and it wasn't recognized and they've had one beer now they're over the edge mm-hmm. um what we we basically call it so i'll i'll get a call on my walkie-talkie from a bartender or one of my beer spotters who's sort of on the lookout for this stuff They'll tell me where they are, and I'll go to that that area in the arena, and I'll get a description of them, and then I'll go around to all my staff, and I'll tell them what the person looks like. If they happen to be walking by, I'll, I'll flag the person. Once I've let all of those people know, or if I'm in process of telling them and I, and I happen to come across this person, I'll pull them aside, and I'll make sure I've got security staff there with me, and just very politely say, look, we're a family entertainment um, you know, arena. I know, you know, you go to lease games, something like that. You can, you can, you know, you can have a bunch of beers and nobody's in the standing, but I'm like, we're a family orientated entertainment area. Mm. You can't be drinking like this here. And we're going to put a stop to it. Now you're, you know, depending on the situation, this is like the, the normal sort of thing that happens is, you know, we'll say you're welcome to stay here, but if we see you with a beer drink or alcoholic beverage in your hand again, we're going to remove you. Right. Um, and to be perfectly honest, like concerts are tough because people are way more mobile hockey, you you know, intermissions, sitting in a seat, intermission, sitting in a seat, and then the game's over and they go home. Mm -hmm. But it's still, you know, it's still, it's, it's, it's obviously a tough one. You put alcohol into that environment, especially if you get like Guelph's got their rivalries. So you've got, you know, London Kitchener, big, you know, big supporters of their teams come up to Guelph and we've got a full house. So sort of. You know, you throw in a bit of booze and some pre-drinking. You know, we don't get. I think I've maybe had to deal with two. I don't want to call them violent incidents since I've been there, but like not nice incidents um, where we've had to get like security and police involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's and it's usually got to do with somebody's been overserved. Somebody was drinking too much when they got in there. They got passed through security. Um, but yeah, normally it's you know we've got really good communication, walkie-talkies police extra security it's i mean it's the city of guelph the last thing you want is one is is somebody to be out there on the road after drinking at a city facility right yeah so it's a lot of responsibility for you uh what in your like on an average night for you would you say that the majority of your time is just spent putting up small fires all over the arena yeah absolutely yeah yeah it's it's you know you (laughs) It's yeah, no, that's absolutely it. You're just plugging holes. It's it's sort of like a ship that's going down and trying to keep it afloat. Right. Put a finger here, put a foot over here, and you know, rely on your staff. Like you know, we we go through a lot of training with the staff at the start of the year, sort of telling them what their responsibilities are, making sure that they're very very familiar with what you know what what's expected of them. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I mean, we do pre I do a pre shift every before every game. This sort of touching. I mean, I try to keep it positive, and I think that's another point between back of house and front of house back of house is very sort of negative influence where front of house is very positive so i mean for me making that switch from the you know trying to be more positive in my message going out like you know we did a really good job on this the other night everybody was helping run food drinks were going out we really you know we really knocked out of the park let's focus on whatever carding let's focus on 
upselling, like whatever that happens to be kind of, you know, we, we always talk about that the following game, mm-hmm. which is difficult too, because sometimes our games are a week apart. Right. So a, that's, that's definitely a difficult thing with that place, because if we have two events in a week, you know, we're doing a ton, we're doing a ton of sales, but then, you know, there's a week between games. So the message from week one going into week two may be reiterated, but you know, it's usually forgotten by week three. So right. like there's, it's, that's, I think that's, it's a tough and frustrating part of time to constantly go back. But like I said, yeah. How many employees like are working on say a game night that you're like so when you're doing your pre shift how many people are you talking to there? Um, so it's usually just my that would just be my restaurant staff in a in a pre shift. So I'd have eight servers, four bartenders, and four runners. Okay. So eight, twelve, sixteen. All right. And then and then I'd have about the same amount in my kitchen, and then throughout the rest of the night, uh, I've got another four guys working in my pizza kitchen, four more bartenders, four beer spotters, and two more cooks. So I'm yeah. usually, I'm usually around 35, 40 staff a night. Yeah. So that's a lot to deal with. <laughs> that's a lot of disparate personalities too. Tell me about what's your philosophy on managing a group that size. Do you have, um, I once, I re- I'm a Celtics fan, so this hurts my heart, but I actually did read the book by Phil Jackson. And, um, he said that you got to treat everybody fairly, but you can't treat everybody the same. Uh, and the difference yeah, between sure. that was a real like light switch for me. It's like you can't treat everybody the same because everybody's got different personalities. But it's easier to do that with a smaller staff. So how do you manage all the personalities? Um, yeah, that's that's a tough one. I mean, it's totally true. Um, you know what? If, there, if you're looking, there's a book I read years ago called The One Minute Manager. It was one of these ones that I read in university um, that was sort of suggested reading. It's short, thin, maybe, you know, 40 pages, big print. It's pretty quick to go through. And it it's suggested just sort of touching touching in on all of your staff as you see them. Whether it's a, like, you know, a, a positive reinforcing message that you're giving them on something that they've done very well or, you know, a reinforcing message on something that they haven't done really well. But every time that you're going to, every time you see somebody, you're going to say something to them, have, have a message for them. Um, I, and you know what, again, back to the young staff millennials, I find, cause I, I don't always have time to do a, um, uh, like an assessment with them. Like, and it's funny because I only ever saw that in sort of corporate culture where I was working, where you'd, we'd call it a 30, 60, 90, where you'd actually sit down and do a review with like the server or the cook. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find with the millennial staff, especially the university kids, they're so used to getting a grade that when they're put into the workforce and there's, and especially as a server, you're expected to manage yourself. Mm-hmm. If they're not getting some sort of positive or negative reinforcement, they're very lost and they don't know they like they need to know if they're doing a good job and they need to have that message coming coming back to them very frequently. Mm-hmm. So I mean if I'm if I'm especially with especially with new staff that we're training, I try to be involved to a point where I'm not micromanaging the person who's training them, but to sort of check in, how are they doing? Do they need more time? We don't have a ton of time to train these people up. Like, do they need to do they need another shadow shift with somebody? Do they need more menu knowledge? Do they need more time on the POS? And really, that's what it, that's usually the big problem. Like, a menu is a menu. I want my staff to know, like, know what they're they're serving, what they're talking about. 
But really, like if you have any serving experience, the toughest thing to learn is the POS system, right? Yeah. That's you know where everything yeah. is making it quick. But I mean, that's really the only thing I can do throughout a shift is how's it going? Everything okay? Do you have any questions? Yes, no, maybe deal with it there, have that quick conversation when I have time. But and again, the other the other big one is is relying on my supervisors to know that, you know, right. I, I trust them to make good decisions and you know and sort of enforce what we've talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll let you get out of here soon. You've given us a lot of time. The um, You did mention before the show we were, uh, that uh, something about um, dealing with servers who don't want promotions. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I, I mean, tough thing for the industry uh, mm-hmm. and anybody that works in this industry, especially if you're a manager and owner. Um, you... Servers make good money. They um, <laughs> managers don't. Right. That's yeah. really, really yeah. there. You go. <laughs> it's yeah. again one of the one of those things in this industry that's very unique to our industry. Like, yeah. What other you know, what other industry do you not want the promotion? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, and there's little bits of a promotion you can get. Like you can get a you can become a supervisor and maybe help write the schedule and you get to pick your shifts. Um, but yeah, like I. Luckily, because of the way our operation runs, where we're two days a week, I manage most of it by myself, and I bring my supervisors in to do little things here and there, whether it's like helping me with inventory or whatever. But before this, when I was in like when I was at like any basically any other job, if you're looking to promote into an actual management position where you're completely taking a server off the floor, what do you like? Most of the places I worked for were offering forty thousand dollars a year. Well, you have so, you pretty much have to, right? Well, but I mean, yeah. if you look at a full time working server, you're gonna make more than that. I mean, especially when you know tax tips aren't taxed. Mm-hmm. So if you're making what to a twelve twelve eighty five now an hour, if you're getting forty hours a week, twelve eighty five is what twenty five thousand dollars a year. So you're getting an extra fifteen thousand dollars a year to be a manager, take all the flack, blah 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 blah. Tell me you're not making fifteen thousand dollars in a year in tips. in tips, yeah, that aren't being taxed. So I mean, again, very unique to our industry, but it's one of those things where do you want to serve for the rest of your life, or do you want to start taking movement up? Like, I mean, I'm right. in a unique position too, where I work for the city of Guelph. I've got a pension, you know, I've I've got some job stability. Mm-hmm. I've been employed through COVID. Like, I took that step. Like, I took the step out in the front of house. And I took the step into management, knowing that, you know, as much as I love serving, it was really the interaction that I liked, and obviously the money. Yeah. Um, but I've kind of now got into a position through experience and sort of taking that step back to take a step forward, where I'm, you know, I've, I've got a fairly stable job, I've got a job I enjoy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, like, even you, like, you, you're an owner. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's not so stable, Gareth. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't talking about mentally or emotionally. <laughs> uh, well, even but even financially these days with COVID, but that's a whole other kettle of fish. But like um, the other thing too that, uh, that relates to what you're talking about, and I've told this to every single person I've ever promoted or hired to be a manager for me is middle management sucks. Like yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get it from yeah. both ends. You're going to get it from me as your owner, and you're going to get it from your employees on the other end, and you're stuck in the middle trying to tow both lines, the friends of, yeah. friends of your employees, but towing company, or towing company line for your owner, right? It's just a shitty position to be in. Yeah, 
No, for sure. It's, I mean, yeah, you've got your friends saying, oh, you've changed. Well, yeah, I've got a new position. (laughs) 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 Sorry. (laughs) Like, yeah. Yeah. But, and then you've got your boss saying, well, you're still friends with these people. And it's like, yeah, I have to work with them. (laughs) Yeah. It's, 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 yeah. I mean, it's probably the worst position to possibly be in. Mm. Um, And this industry, I mean, is very unforgiving on that part of it too. Right. Yeah, and but you're you're right in the sense that like if you do want to do any like first of all, I anyone who tries to be a bar owner without ever having the experience of being a manager is an idiot. Uh, and uh, and if bar restaurant owner and uh, on the other hand, if you do maybe you're not interested in being an owner, but you you're interested in staying in this industry forever. A lot of people don't want to be. Some people are totally cool with this, and I completely understand it. Being in their seventies, still being on the floor at a place that they can handle the workload physically, but generally, you're going to want to make a transition to take some heat off your body, and yeah. and then that means moving into a management position eventually, right? But even look at like your best sales rep and other other facets of this industry where servers or 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 cooks go. Like there's not a lot of servers that go from a serving position into a sales position unless they're an absolute rock star. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of cooks that you know that go from being a line cook into working for GFS and selling you product. Uh, you just you don't get them unless they have that management experience where they they understand what their client wants. Right. And as like I, I find my favorite salespeople that I have, um, they have that management experience where they're like. Gee, I know you're not like you don't normally bring in a product like this, like whether it's a convenient product or whatever, but it would save you a lot of time. It's saving you a whole bunch of labor, blah, 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 blah. Like, here, try it. Here's a sample. Whereas, you know, somebody who doesn't have the experience and they're just being told by their head office, you need to push this product. Mm-hmm. And it, like, because we've all had that salesperson that comes in saying, here's this crap bottle of wine my boss told me to sell. Okay, great. Fine. Thanks. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. Or, or, <laughs> yeah. I mean, more importantly, I mean, from the bar perspective, um, you know, we don't have time to juice juice all of our own lemons and stuff like that before a shift. But we do have a you know a really great product. It's from GFS. It's um it's not a concentrate. It's like a fresh, freshly squeezed and then frozen lemon juice. Mm-hmm. Like it's pure lemon juice, no no sugar, no preservatives, nothing in it. Yeah, I'd use and that. It, yeah. yeah, but I mean, do you really want to pay your staff? for 45 minutes to sit there with one of those freaking lemon juicers and, and cut them and blah, blah, blah. And- I gave up on that after rabbit. And we, um, like we've had this yeah. discussion on the show before and I understand both sides of it. Like fresh is fresh, fresh is better. I get it. But then you, but the, once you get to the owner management side of it, you really just see the cost of waste and labor that goes yeah. into juicing all your, um, juice. It's, and it's just, it's really, when you really break it down, from a financial standpoint, it doesn't make much sense. No. And plus, do you really want some of those servers handling a knife? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I once had a server, this is a true story, um, that I didn't realize. I was trying to help this person out. They were coming off a bit of a drug issue, and I didn't realize that coming off was uh, a generous way of putting what was happening to their drug situation. Um, and <laughs> they were cutting limes at the restaurant and then had, they were just, fucked up on something. I 
I'm a, it seemed like crystal meth and all of a sudden just started waving that knife around at guests and co-workers I'm like yeah wait, wait a second are you talking about me? no for a change <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so yeah service with knives not always the best idea yeah. uh, Gareth thanks so much for doing this today we really appreciate you coming on and it, I was really interesting talking to you about the Sleeman Center and I hope things continue to go well for you there i'm glad that you're doing okay personally hopefully we get back to a point where like sports and concerts are like with fans are a thing again and absolutely like uh but yeah yeah best of luck in everything and i'm glad to know that at least you've got a stable job very few of us do right now so congratulations <laughs> for that yeah, and, no dude i count my blessings I, yeah. I really do and yeah i'm looking forward to getting i mean looking forward to get my staff back and i, I know a lot, a lot of my guys have been trying to place them or help them get jobs where i've got buddies that are looking for staff and whatnot but mm. it's uh yeah this with everything with it, well, I, I live out in burlington now but uh they're threatened to put us in the law um, stage two um back down to stage two and i mean most of toronto's already yes. like that anyway but i'm uh, i'm hoping that we can sort of round this corner and keep everything still open fingers it's, crossed uh, buddy fingers crossed absolutely i'll be down to right. visit you guys soon enough though okay good good man thanks again thanks very much okay absolutely pleasure guys bye-bye yeah, bye. Ciao.